Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Ever wondered how a book gets made into a movie? Or how to master the art of cooking? Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. On our podcast, we're going to be serving you a fresh perspective of the entertainment industry alongside our favorite celebrity guests. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I was joined by Daniel Barbarisi. You might know him as the uh, editor of The Athletic Boston. You might know him as the author of Dueling with Kings. But neither subject is actually why we are uh, chatting with Daniel today. He is coming out with a book entitled The Thrill of the Chase, which is about the discovery of Forrest Fenn's treasure. And uh, I promise you, it's even more interesting interesting than it sounds. Uh, You know, a a real actual treasure hunt in the United States of America in the late 2020s. I mean, it it really is a a very fascinating story. And Daniel's book will be coming out this summer. Uh, I would definitely encourage you to pre-order it. As Daniel says in the show, that's very useful. And that's very helpful. And you guys know I would never steer you wrong with books on the show. If you want to support this podcast, you can get bonus episodes of the show on patreon.com slash takecast, or you can just support the show by leaving a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone, welcoming in Daniel Barbarisi into the podcast. You probably know him from his book, Dueling with Kings. I assume most of you who listen to the TakeCast probably read uh, Dueling with Kings. And uh, the reason why I actually wanted to have Daniel on the show, though, is he is coming out with a new book, not for a while, probably about four months or June is five months from now. Uh, long, long time. Well, I'm okay. Everyone knows I'm bad at math. I'm not keeping these things straight. But you have a new book coming out that we're going to talk about. Um, a little bit later where uh, our old friend uh, Beep, I'm a Jeep, uh, shows up in that book as well. And also, weirdly enough, the Forest Fen Treasure came up in a quarantine podcast that we did here. Daniel, uh, my, my good friend Jeff Collins, was, uh, was one of these searchers. He was, he was one of the people trying to find Forest Fen's treasure. So also, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, I, uh, it's so funny the number of people who I have randomly run into I wouldn't have expected to be finding the treasure who are so excited about it and who know all about the story and who are really, really into the whole concept. So I actually didn't know that Jeff was a searcher, but now I'm going to uh, give him some crap about why he didn't find it. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I, I think that uh, one of the things that, I, that came through when I was reading your piece on longform.com this week was that I, I assume many, many of the people who were searchers were doing it in a like mathematical and analytical style way. And uh, the, the guy who found Forrest Fenn's treasure 
says that really was not the the correct way to do it. That uh, that it was more of a, of a close reading of a, of an English major style analysis of the situation. Yeah, I mean, people brought so many different, you know, solutions to this puzzle. Um, you know, and it's 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 a very tricky thing because I guess yes, one of them turned out to be right, but truly anything could have been. You know, there were people who were trying to find GPS coordinates hidden in the words. There were people who were you know using anagrams and serious weird code breaking type stuff you know there were people who you know stuff that you would just you couldn't even explain if you tried a million times so many people wrote so many different things and you know this this guy who did uh who was successful uh jack stoof you know he he basically as he said as you said brought a kind of english major sensibility to it um and the idea of reading it closely and trying to understand forrest fenn who of course hid this treasure 10 years ago in 2010 and uh you know, that's really what got Jack to it. He really understood better than most people that it's about understanding Fen and just trying to almost take it a little bit more literally than I think a lot of people did. Um, you know, when when Jay, uh, and Jeep Rainer and I were out searching for it, you know, Jay brought a lot of, as you would expect, contrarian ideas to the puzzle. And so he was not reading it quite as literally. And at the time, I thought that was like big advantage. And it turns out <laughs> we actually should have been maybe a little more literal in the end, but uh, you know, you never know any of that until somebody actually finds the thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, so this. Well, first off, let's just let's just start here. What mm-hmm. is Forrest Fenn's treasure? Explain it. If someone is coming to this blind, yes, what is Forrest Fenn's treasure? Okay. Yeah. So, um, in the 1980s, in 1988, um, an ex-fighter pilot turned millionaire art dealer to the stars out in Santa Fe, Forrest Fenn, uh, found out he was going to die. And he had a, a terminal cancer diagnosis, and he was expected to not last, you know, the year, et cetera. And so he came up with the idea that he didn't want to go out like that. And somebody, actually Ralph Lauren, um, the actual Ralph Lauren said to him, you know, you Forrest, what are you going to do with all your stuff? You can't take it with you. Sell me your goods. And he said, no, I'm going to take it with me. So he came up with this crazy plan to um, basically go out into the wilderness at this special spot of his and take a treasure chest filled with, you know, a million plus dollars worth of gold and jewels and stuff that was meaningful to him, sit down next to it and take some pills and die because he was going to die anyway. And then he would write a poem where that was going to lead people to that chest and his body. And they would actually find it out there. Um, Really kind of macabre, but also pretty interesting and crazy. And so turns out, miracle of miracles, he doesn't die. He beats the cancer. And so obviously that plan gets put on hold. Um, But over the next 20 years, he spends a lot of time actually kind of refining what he wants to do. He doesn't put the idea away. He builds the chest into a better thing. He refines the poem. And then in 2010, he actually goes out and hides this thing. Um, and so after that, he publishes his memoir, which has this poem in it. And it doesn't get a ton of information or a ton of notice at first. But then after a few years, um, people start to really pick up on this. And in this treasure hunt of this treasure chest hidden somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, so basically... New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana becomes this big thing and it really starts to take off. And at a certain point, you know, it, it grows into a huge, huge phenomenon. And then in about 2016, it starts getting a little crazy. Um, one guy goes out searching for it. He dies, he drowns in a river, um, essentially. Uh, the next year when Jay and I start to get into it, 2017, uh, three people die in very short succession um, in a, a very, very, like about a month's time in June and July of 2017. And it starts to get very controversial. Uh, and then, you know, there's a couple more years of this whole thing. And then in June of this year, June 2020, uh, the treasure was actually found and retrieved by a guy named 
Jack Stoop. And, uh, you know, what you were referring to before is I, I wrote an article in Outside Magazine kind of promoing my upcoming book, Chasing the Thrill, where I broke the news of who actually the guy was who found the treasure. So he and I had kind of developed a relationship. I managed to figure out who he was and get in touch with him. And, you know, at a certain point, he was okay with me releasing who he was to the world. So um, now everyone knows who actually found the treasure. Uh, and the hunt is over, but there are, of course, people out there who think it's not really over, it's a fraud, or blah, 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 this or that, but it's over, trust me. So, okay, so just Carson died in September, I should probably note that too. Just as a journalism flex, you have to tell people how you got in contact with this guy, because this that was, <laughs> as, uh, as someone who's done like a little bit of journalism here and there, I mean, that I was like... Wow, that is that's that very cool, yeah. inventive of you. Yeah, that was very yeah. cool. No, you're you're not wrong. I will I will you know uh, yes I will pat myself on the back on that one. You're not wrong. Um, so yeah, so this guy nobody knew who he was. The treasure had been found for you know three plus months, and nobody had heard anything from quote unquote the finder. So Tharspen, the guy who hid the treasure, dies in September. A couple weeks later, on the website Medium, um, which you know it allows people to anonymously post, anonymously post uh, an essay shows up. Um, and it's from, quote unquote, the finder. And, you know, it has all these details about the treasure and a couple of pictures of the chest that only somebody who actually had it could have. And it, it explains some basics about the guy. And it's basically, you know, the guy's saying, I'm the finder. I did it. I think the forest friend did a great thing here. I kind of want to eulogize him. Um, don't contact me. You're not going to find out who I am. Goodbye. Um, I was like, okay, but I want to find out who this guy is. So, um, there's no way to actually contact anybody directly on Medium. You can just leave a, you know, post in the comments, but that doesn't guarantee you anything because anyone can else can see those comments and they can write you back. And so you have no way of thinking that the person who's getting in touch with you is actually somebody real. So I wouldn't do that as a journalist trying to contact this guy. What I figured out you could do is that you can actually send a message that will go to the author of a post by flagging a typo inside the post. And it gives you like a teensy little bit of room to explain what the nature of the problem is. So I flagged some weird section of his essay and I put in my information and said, Dan Barbarisi, doing a book, here's my email, please contact me. And fortunately he had actually heard about me and what I was doing and he knew about that already. And so he actually did reach out and said, all right, I know who you are, maybe we'll talk. And I was like, yes. So then it kind of developed from there over the next couple months and we talked a lot and eventually he came to kind of trust me on things. And you know, when it came time for him to be outed because that was potentially going to happen in some court documents anyway. Um, I said, Hey, can you let me tell your story? And he was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. So that kind of led to the, um, the big article on outside magazine, uh, not that long ago, like a week or two ago, whatever that was. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things from this article that seems kind of like a bummer is so Jack Stoif is yep. Stoof seems very respectful of the treasure seems very respectful of what, Forrest would have wanted, you know, not showing the spot where it is. And uh, just one of my immediate thoughts when reading your article was, oh, well, this is going to come out in the lawsuit and they're going <laughs> to, and, and the, the counterparty is going to demand to go there. It, uh, well, I guess I should say if the lawsuit does even progress and like, and like, I don't know, like, I don't know the validity of this. Uh, it's, it's some woman who claims that what he hacked her text messages. Yeah. So, so I would, I would hope, I would hope that it doesn't come out, but I, I do think that, um, you know, unfortunately this is kind of one of those things where like nothing golden can stay and yeah. the more, you know, the more public it gets, the more attention it gets. It feels like, uh, you know, poor Forrest and poor Jack, they're going to have like, they, it's going to, it's going to kind of end up bastardizing this thing that was mm -hmm. very, very, like the, the 
it feels like a non two thousand or non twenty twenty story, right? Like the, oh, the, I totally this agree. is it's like such an anachronism that exists at all. It's like right. it's like this weird thing out of time. Totally agree with that. Yeah. Like you would you would think that this story being told in 2020 would be like uh, like be literally being done on Instagram live like someone <laughs> is like someone is like digging it up and like posting it to their st- like to like fleeting it as they're yeah, uncovering the treasure. Yeah, that's yeah. awful. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I agree with you that like I think it's going to come out eventually too. I don't know if it'll come out in those court in that court case. I I would be surprised if that court case had legs quite frankly. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably going to get to the point where he is identified. And then, you know, it may not really go anywhere from there. But I agree with you that at some point, some way, somehow, probably something will come out. I would not be surprised. But, like, it's funny because, like, I don't know where the treasure is. And I don't want to know because there are a lot of people in this who I frankly don't want them to think that I know. And I don't. I do not know where the fucking treasure is. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, but, like, I think, you know, that's the thing where he's, you know, he's done a lot to protect his own anonymity and make sure nobody can find where he is because there are a lot of people who, take this a little too seriously, quite frankly. And so, you know, you don't want those people to get the wrong idea about anything. Um, and so I, like, I understand why he doesn't want the location of the treasure known because it will become like a tourist site. It will become a pilgrimage site. It's supposed to be this place where Forrest Fenn wanted to lay down and literally die. And he didn't do that, but it's still a special spot to him. And so, you know, like preserving that is totally in keeping with the theme and the premise and the mood of this treasure hunt. And so I understand why he wants to keep it you know, held back. And honestly, look, I don't mind that there's a little mystery remaining to it either. I think that's kind of cool in its own way. So, you know, I agree with you. I think it will come out eventually, but um, I also think that's a little too bad. So kind of, kind of backtracking a little bit, how did you hear about the forest fen treasure and how did you decide to, to start searching yourself? Uh, that's, that's uh, due to our old friend, Pete Jeep. So uh, Jay, um, he, you know, after my first book had come out, this was the spring of 2017. Um, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to work on next. And he like basically for a little while, like dropped off the map entirely. And then he like resurfaced like three weeks later. He was like, Dan, you got to know about this thing. Have you heard about this? It's the treasure of Forrest Fenn. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, we got to go find it. I was like, he's like, this is going to make a great next book. And I was like, what? I have literally no idea what you're talking about. And then he like kind of sent me some stuff about it. I was like, oh my God, there's a hidden treasure. This is nuts. Um, and it would make a great book. And I, we definitely need to go find it. So, uh, he was right again on that one. Um, and so, yeah, you know, from that point, it was like, all right, I got to figure out, you know, to me, the best way to tell a story, and this is what I did in Doom Kings too, as you know, is to kind of get inside it and experience it and, you know, be able to kind of understand what the people who are really deep in it are feeling and thinking. And so my idea here was, all right, let's go become treasure hunters. Let's get into it. Let's get out there and, you know, go crazy for it and kind of live amongst the hunters and do what they do and, you know, get to know Fen and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it was exactly what I hoped it would be. It was a crazy, weird rabbit hole to go down um, with its own strange subculture and, you know, kind of this cult of personality around the main guy who's, you know, in charge of this whole thing. And um, it's, you know, it's certainly nothing like I've ever seen before and certainly will never again. Um, and yeah, it was just like a chance to tell a really cool, weird, interesting story. And also to play treasure hunter, you know, like, what's the point of writing a book about treasure hunting if you don't get to be a treasure hunter, you know? It's right. like, that would be an incredible waste. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was a terrible treasure hunter. Jay was much better than I was. I basically just like, was like, all right, where should we go now? And he's like, all right, I got this cool idea for this thing and this thing and that thing. And I would be like, all right, what about this canyon? I, I was awful. But yeah. uh, he, he had some good, some good ideas. And we, 
you know, we explored some of those. Obviously, did not come away with the treasure in the end, but um, I think we actually did some good hunting, mostly thanks to his solves, not mine. So you the the book was planned before the treasure was found, right? If I'm understanding oh, you correctly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. Three years. So so you are kind of uh, like super size me, right? Like like taking advantage, uh, not taking advantage, but like undergoing uh, transformative experiences for your art, like yes. uh, like like That's seeking. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, so far so good. You know? um, yeah, last time it worked out. I mean, you, you, I think they can't see, but I think you can probably see the Shatter jersey on the wall there, which is a remnant of the last book. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's that's the fun of it. Is, you know, get into the world, tell the story, um, have some cool experiences, have some fun. You know, um, that's that's kind of the the point, I guess. It's it, I don't like telling stories where I know the ending where I before I start. Yeah, um, it can be a little bit, you know, tiger by the tail in terms of. Oh God, now this happened. Now this happened. Like, you know, this time when I'm literally almost done with essentially a basic version of the book, the treasure got found. Now that's great, but it's also terrible because it's great because suddenly my, the ending of the treasure being found is much better than whatever ending I had, believe me. But it also requires essentially last minute, significant, massive rewrites and following a whole new story of what happens after it actually gets found and everything that then comes from that point on. Uh, and so then I'm fortunate to have some very understanding publisher and editor and all that um, who understood that, okay, we're going to need to let this have a little longer to play out and let this guy kind of do more recording and figure everything out and, and rewrite all this stuff. So it is awesome to not know the ending when you start. It is also like incredibly stressful and nuts and taxing. And I, I don't know if I recommend it as a strategy. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like, uh, it seems certainly more of like a do as I say, not as I do <laughs> yeah, style situation. So what's a, what's a, what's a sicker sweat? DFS sweating or, or sweating out, uh, fight, trying to find buried treasure? <laughs> uh, the DFS sweat is, is a lot more consistent, I'll say that. There were a few times during the treasure hunting process where it was real like, oh my God, are we actually about to find this thing? And that was like, you know, a feeling that's pretty crazy. Um, you know, definitely likened to the the last few seconds of of a sweat or something when you're like, oh my god, do not complete that pass. Okay, 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 we're good. You know, but um, yeah, uh, it's it's definitely you know it, it had its ups and downs and some kind of weird and terrifying moments and some awesome moments. Um, but uh, yes, certainly on the day to day basis, the DFS sweat was a lot more intense. So. Uh, if I was, again, if I'm understanding the situation correctly, was it a surprise to see this treasure found in Wyoming? Because it, it seemed like all of the deaths took place in Colorado. And I assume like the the one-to-one -one translation is people hear the Rocky Mountains and they just go to Colorado. <laughs> so I would assume that's where a vast majority of the searching went. But again, like I, I, I know about Forrest Fence treasure from a five-minute conversation with Jeff six months ago <laughs> and then seeing you, uh, you know, promote this book. Yeah. No, so actually, uh, I would say that of the, and I actually have some data on this, incredibly, because there were some surveys done of the searchers, but um, Colorado, of the four possible search states, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado is actually fourth out of four, I believe. Uh, in wow, terms of okay. Of searchers who go there. Uh, I think the people who died were from Colorado, and one of them died in Colorado, but for the most part, they just went to the other states to die. So, um, <laughs> New Mexico and the Yellowstone-ish area of one of Montana and Wyoming are the two most searched out spots. Um, I, so like if you could kind of take that zone that covers the two states and has West Yellowstone and Yellowstone Park itself, that would be the primary, I would say, the most popular search area. 
and then New Mexico would be right behind that. But if you have to break it down by states, I think it's New Mexico officially. Um, so those, because Ben lived in Santa Fe and he had a lot of connections to Northern New Mexico. And there's a lot of stuff in his memoir that relates to New Mexico. And then he spent his winters, or pardon me, his summers when he was growing up um, as a guide in the Yellowstone area. And so he has all these tales in his book of you know, frolicking in hot springs and getting up to weird hijinks and all this jazz in the Yellowstone area. And so those are the places that people saw as significant to him. And uh, it turns out that, you know, Wyoming of his youth and his summers out there was the more significant. And I, again, I don't know if it was in Yellowstone or outside Yellowstone, but it was somewhere in Wyoming, for sure. So um, it turns out that that was the, the answer. And again, for, you know, continuing what a lousy treasure hunter I am, I was like, it's in New Mexico. Da, 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 da. But Beep thought the whole time it was in the Yellowstone area or Wyoming in general. So he gets another point for that. So uh, I lose, he wins again. There you go. You can't, you can't beat him. I mean, yeah. what was, did you guys at any point get even, like, let's say 20 miles from the spot or, or even, well, even thinking? Know. We yeah. honestly don't know. Okay, um, fair enough, you know, yeah. Wyoming's a big place, so 20 miles is, is not a lot in terms of that. Right. And, you know, we drove around a fair amount of it, but um, I, I, I honestly don't know, you know. Uh, I'd like to think we did, but, ah, you know. So. Yeah. Um, all right, so, you know, no, no, big, no big spoilers for the book or anything. Um, well, actually, this is another good question. Are there other people who have come out and claimed to have been like, oh, you know, I was in – X, Y, and Z part, like other people who have claimed, like, uh, I, I should have found this or I have right to this. I mean, there is. The... If you want yeah. dozens and dozens of emails like that, I'm your guy. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people who are convinced that, you know, something nefarious happened or that, you know, they were just there that morning or the day before or, da, 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 or it didn't happen because of this or this or that. And, you know, um, you know, without casting aspersions on anybody in particular, I will say I have received a lot of emails to that effect after the piece ran, before as well. Um, there are a lot of people like that who, who do say that kind of stuff. And certainly right after the treasure was found in June, um, there were a lot of people who came out and said, this was taken, you know, right ahead of me, or I was right there, I was going to go get it tomorrow, or all that kind of stuff. So, um, yes, I think that there, you know, that is a very prevalent thing within certain segments of the search community. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is that is a little bit of a bummer. I'm, I, I guess one of the things that I would wonder is, you know, if the if the location does come out, I want I I th I could see it having two effects, right? You could see a bunch of people being like, oh, well, I wasn't even close, yeah. um, and so like I wasn't even close. I just wanted it to be found because I guess you kind of get the sense from these people that. Sure. I mean, yeah, having $2 million worth of gold and rubies, like who's, who's going to turn that down? But it, it becomes a lot more about the hunt. And then when yeah, the hunt being right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when the hunt is solved, I would imagine that like some of the craziness goes away. I mean, maybe that's the wrong sure. read. You'd I actually be surprised. So when they really, when they announced, so initially when the treasure was found in June, um, no information was given. And then after about a month and a half, Fenn talked to Jack Stoof and said, can we release the state where it was found at least? to give some people some measure of closure. And so they agreed and they released the state and said it was in Wyoming. And the number of people who regardless said, I don't believe it, it's in New Mexico. I don't believe it, it's in Montana. You know, that's BS is because that corresponded with what they already thought was surprising to me. You know, even when the people involved are saying, this is what it was, there are a number of people out there and I've talked to numbers who say, nope, no, well, that's just not it. Well, okay, well, what are you supposed to say to that? You know, it's like, all right. I, I, I guess. All right. Um, so, yeah. So, the, you know, there's, there's things where if you 
some people are going to believe what they're going to believe no matter what, I think. Yeah, which is kind of the way it is with everything. <laughs> like, uh, so I'm wondering, you know, how many people have you told in your life about the, the DFS experiments? And, you know, like, I, I would, well, what's your, what are your thoughts on the DFS community now? Like, are, do, you, do you still play at all? Do you still, do you track no, anything? I, I don't think I've played in any real way since the beginning of 20, the beginning of the 2019 hockey season, I guess, is the last time I played really at all. Um, I don't think I played much. I think I, I played for a while at the beginning of the 2018 hockey season. So generally what happens is, you know, uh, I'm like, all right, I kind of missed this. I'll get back into it. You know, I'll go check it out again. And I do pretty well for the first couple of weeks. And I get, get up to like, you know, five-figure win-ish area. And then low five figures, believe me. Uh, and then I'm like, all right, good. And then like life gets in the way and I get lazy. And I'm like, okay, I want to get some lineups in. And I rush a couple of days because I got job stuff to do or book stuff to do or right. whatever, you know. And like then, you know, I piss away a bunch of money over, you know, space of week or two and lose my winnings. And then I'm like, all right, you're not going to commit that kind of time to it. Don't be an idiot and do it. Um, you know, and I, you know, I fell into, I would fall into the trap both those years of half-assing it. And so I was like, all right, stop half-assing it. Stop doing that. And so I probably, you know, it's kind of, as, as you guys well know, you know, look, I was never an algorithm player. I don't have my own, you know, system that pumps out stuff for me and I can just kind of plug and play and, you know, even to a limited extent. So if I'm not doing the research on a daily basis of breaking down games, I'd suck. I'm not going to succeed. So in my mind, you know, don't do it if you're not going to spend the time. And I would fall into that trap a little bit um, just because there's too much stuff going on and I didn't have the time to commit to it. So I do miss it. It is a lot of fun, but you know, you need time if you're going to do it in a serious way. And I just was not able to commit that to it, but I definitely do miss playing and, you know, whenever it kind of, that itch comes back, you know, and you kind of get on there a yeah. little bit. It's like, Ooh, I missed this. This is fun. Um, yeah. But you know, I've got a, I was never anybody who was able to just kind of put in like, you know, 25 bucks worth of lineups and be like, Oh, we fun little distraction. That's not me at all. If I don't have, you know, like four figures on it, I'm like, this is pointless. Yeah, it's like yeah. You need you need you need more sweat equity. You need like you you gotta have the real sweat equity. Otherwise, it's like why am I even gonna bother researching for this level of you know if I'm not putting in that kind of stake? So, um, so yeah. So I I had a hard time kind of just being invested without that. uh, And if I'm not gonna do the research to put in that kind of money, then I'm an idiot. So don't do it. Was the short version, (laughs) but I do miss it honestly. Well. I, I mean, one of the things is, is that it, it's become even more, you know, algorithmically driven. Yeah. The projections are even better. Everyone you're playing against has access yeah. to the projections. It is, I mean, obviously, like, these things are, uh, I mean, not exactly linear, but basically the field is just going to get tougher and tougher yeah. and tougher, right? The uh, gets so much more efficient. Certainly when, when I was in it, you know, 15, 16, 17, I mean, versus now, I mean, 15, my God. To think about, like, you know, if, it's almost like you know, back to the future going back with the, the sports almanac. It's like that equivalent of like, well, I can just go back to 2015 and play DFS knowing what I know now. It'd be like, Oh my God, you just destroy everybody, you know, but of course it doesn't work that way. Yeah. I mean, just if you, not even, not even knowing like the answers to the test, but just straight up just being like, you know, being able to process things in right. well, with I mean, your, with your 2020 brain, you know, just the concepts, you know, it's just, we are so yeah. much more efficient in how the market works and how you understand what stats matter and, you know, the way to build lineups, everything about it. That's, I didn't mean knowing the actual, you know, results. I sure. mean, just the process that people go through now, you know, is so, so far ahead of what it was five years ago that it's like crazy, you know, how fast, how fast that market got super efficient, I think. 
Yeah. Um, and probably even back when you were doing it, many people were just doing things by hand, right? Back 20, yes. 2015, 2016, 2017, oh. like op optimizers were, you know, post Ethan gate optimizers yeah. certainly became more popular, but now I would assume almost everyone playing like over a hundred dollars in a given yeah. slate, you know, probably, uh, probably does, I would say have some kind of access to optimizer. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, do you kind of think this just mass spreading of good projections, good tools to work with? Like, do you think that that is just basically speeding up the transition of popular consciousness to sports betting as it becomes rapidly more legal? I mean, yes and no. I, I think that, you know, chances are DFS, as sports betting spreads, it's just such a lower bar to entry. Um, you know, it is generally speaking easier. Um, I think you're going to, you're going to run into, you know, that becoming more prevalent. I mean, obviously DraftKings and FanDuel for them, the goal was always sports betting. You know, the goal was to hang in long enough to get such where it all happened. And it, look, it happened faster than I think anyone could have expected. You know, I, I don't think there was any question about that. They were targeting, you know, the 2020 to 2025 period for getting something. And now that's, you know, well underhand, obviously. Um, but, you know, there's two ways I look at it. You know, if the market becomes, you know, if, if the, the playing field becomes a little flatter because everyone has access to decent, mostly public available tools, then, you know, you don't have the same level of the cold, quote unquote, shark versus fish dynamic. You don't have, you know, the few superpower users who really can press a huge advantage as they could in the 15, 16 period. You know, the rules on the sites are better. Um, you know, you don't have that same edge where the best players are really going to dominate in the same ways. Um, and you don't have people coming into it from the general public thinking, oh, I can just, I, I'm a good fantasy team owner. I'm going to be great at DFS, you know, which you really yeah. absolutely had in huge numbers back then. Um, everyone understands that now. So, you know, it's weird because you're not going to have people coming in thinking, I can have an edge right away. They know better than that now. But you're also, and, and they're going to have tools so they can be reasonably effective and reasonably efficient. But, you know, it's also a super optimized ecosystem now. And the people who are good are good for a reason. And they know what to do and they know how to do it. And so, you know, if you're somebody just trying to kind of start up with it and, you know, your, your learning curve, even with all the good stuff available, you're going to get, I would think you're going to have a pretty hard time doing well and building a bankroll slowly and getting yourself up to speed when everyone else is just so good now. You know, there's even the bad users are good. Everybody's pretty good, you know. So, yeah. yes, in general, I think that likely leads to a situation where sports betting becomes more prominent continually and as it will no question but and dfs continues to become more of a niche thing as other states come online but in the interim period where you know you've got half the states not even close to it having sports betting you know and dfs you can do a lot of places you know there's a lot of there's still a lot of demand for it and look it is super fun it's a fun game um and so, you know, I think in the long term, I don't think there's a question that sports betting wins and becomes the more dominant entity. And obviously that's what DK and Vandal are doing. But, you know, um, DFS has its place and I think certainly will continue to for a long time. Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, I, <laughs> I like, I, I just prefer DFS to sports betting. Yeah. Um, like, I think it's more fun. I, I think it's a more, I think it's a more challenging game. game. Yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's a thinking man's game in a lot of ways versus sports betting, which is not that it's not, but... You know, it's, it's a very different game in, in so many ways. And I enjoy the DFS, you know, I enjoy the challenge of DFS much more than sports betting on 100 levels, absolutely. 
Yeah. Uh, was was sports betting even kind of on the forefront when you were working on dealing with Kings? Like, was that even like a, a strategy thing that's being no. talked no, about? It, no, it wasn't at all. I mean, it was, you know, it was still, we expected to be five years away at that point, you know, if we're talking about 2016, 2017, when I was really getting the book out, you know, again, I don't think anybody expected sports betting to be here before 2020, 2021, 2022, and got a two-year jump start on that, basically. So, um yeah, I mean, no, it just wasn't even a thing, you know, that, that was part of at least my process at all. Um, you know, of course, you're going to look at betting-related sites to get, you know, intel, advice, thoughts, you know, breakdowns on specific games, that kind of stuff. And that translates, of course, as we all know. But, um, you know, just in terms of actually doing sports betting at the time, like, I didn't even consider it. It wasn't it wasn't part of my world. I was interested in DFS and in cracking DFS and telling the story of DFS and sports betting. Well, I knew it was the future for these companies. I didn't have really much interest in it. Yeah. I, well, it tends to attract a different kind of person. I think yes. like I, like DFS is going to be more, uh, it's going to be more appealing to someone who likes games. And yes. I think sports betting is more appealing to people who like sports, right? Who like, Oh, uh, yes, I want to, I, I want to watch, uh, Sunday night football, so I'm going to bet Ravens minus three. Whereas, like, Showdown, uh, yeah. you know, the single game contest, like, those are those are tools for uh, people who really like games and people who really yeah, like gambling. Game and to understand and break something down, absolutely. And DFS is, is so much better for that kind of stuff, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, so you are, which it's so weird, like, we've had this whole conversation about these books you've written, but that's not even your day job. Your, your oh, day yeah, yeah. job is working for The Athletic Boston, um, yes. so I, I, I have a couple of Boston related sports questions. The first okay. one being Marcus Smart, great Celtic or the greatest Celtic. I, I love Marcus <laughs> Smart. He is my favorite player in the NBA. I love that dude. I think he's amazing. I mean, you know, um, greatest Celtic, obviously, you know, I, I know where we're going with it, but you know, there may be a couple guys ahead of him on that list, but I think Marcus Smart is awesome. Um, I love the way he plays, you know, he's ferocious. He's honestly kind of an underrated offensive player now. And he was, he had such a bad shot for so long that people still kind of can't realize that he can kind of shoot now, you know? Um, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's, but he's got there. He's not, he's not a detriment, you know, in that way. And, you know, obviously the defense is sick. You know, for a guy his size to D up the way he does is unreal. I mean, you know, there's – he wasn't going to win Defensive Player of the Year last year, but I think he had a really interesting argument for it, you know, in the way that – the things he allows your team to do – um, and that, you know, he can guard big, he can guard wings, he can guard everywhere. And, you know, he just changes the whole dynamic of that team. And, you know, he's going to play in some point guard now with Kemba out. Like, it's awesome. I think Marcus Martin is like the coolest player in the NBA. His hair gets big, it gets small. He's all over the place. He's great. He's ferocious. Like, huge, huge fan. Yeah. Um, so, I love Danny Ainge, right? We all, we all love Danny Ainge. Um, but I think now it's going to become kind of a popular – opinion that those those nets assets were squandered a little bit um because they they are what they made the eastern conference finals right they they you know and tatum tatum does look like you know uh the next great wing player you know he could i think he's got that Kawhi leonard style ceiling probably uh you know assuming no question yeah um but you know i well maybe more important than what the outside opinion is what is the what is the mood in Boston like is it because Boston sports fans you know uh, they're they're uh, they're a very passionate bunch is is kind of the the mood and the attitude um that 
the, some of those assets were squandered? I mean, I think that's, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, it seemed like the Celtics for like three or four years, you know, they were, they were, they were good before they were supposed to be, you know, their young guys broke out kind of before they were supposed to, you know, those Isaiah Thomas teams even made some deep runs that made, they weren't supposed to make. So, you know, there's been a lot of like, well, the Celtics are good kind of before they were expected to be. And then now, you know, last year really when like everything was together and the year before that Kyrie, you know, I think when everyone expected them to make those deep runs, and more importantly to your question, when everyone expected them to kind of add one more piece that they seem to be like clearing the decks for for so many years, you know, when the Anthony Davis pursuit was out there, you know, and there's other guys, um, that piece has not arrived, you know? Like, you talk about those Nets assets, yeah, you know, in theory, the idea was to build towards adding one more superstar that takes this team to the next level, and that has not happened. Now, you can argue that Tatum becomes that, and then you build around him from this point. And, but, I mean, I, it's just hard to look at this team this year and say, oh, they're better than last year because losing Gordon Hayward is a big loss, you know? I mean, yeah, Tristan Thompson's great, wonderful, whatever. But, like, you know, that's not a team where you're going to look at and say, oh, okay, they are better than they were last year. So what have you done with those assets? You know, like you have this huge trade, except, trade exception now. That's cool. If you can use that in some other ways, maybe there's some possibilities there. but. Yeah, I mean, I think that more could have been done, absolutely. Not that I have a specific idea for what should have been done, but I think more could have been done. But, you know, like the, the Danny Ainge out crowd, small as it is, go away. You know, all of them can go away. The guy continues to be very good just because he didn't maximize what he probably could have done better in this situation. Like, you know, it's not over yet is the short version of my mind. Yeah, well, of course it's not over, right? I mean, they still have what? Tatum is twenty-two. How how old is Jalen? He's he's, he's what? A year? Yeah. yeah. So like, I mean, the idea that like the window is closed or whatever is like, like laughable. I mean, was like thirty, you know, whatever. Like, you know, this is a really good team. So yeah, yeah, and they they do it. They have possibilities. They have a lot of flexibility where they didn't before this, you know. And Hayward was good, obviously, but you don't want to sign him to the deal that Charlotte signed him to. You know, that's crazy. So, you know, it's like, yes, you're, you're not as good as you were last year, I think. But, you know, they have a lot of possibilities going forward. Yeah. Um, okay. Another – well, I, I think the pressure is on the Celtics right now because we are in, we are in a winter – for Boston sports, right? Cam Newton oh, yeah. led Patriots, not oh, yeah. there. Oh, yeah. oh, uh, the Red the Red Sox are terrible. I, I guess, are yeah. the Bruins good? I honestly don't even the know. The Bruins are good, yes. The Bruins are good. The Bruins, so, you know, it's funny. I actually grew up in New York, and I still consider myself a Jets fan, probably the one, like, U.S. sports team that I actually still care about in any way. And I covered the Red Sox, and I covered the Yankees as a beat writer for years. So I have kind of, like, a weird perspective of being too close to both those teams. Um, but – uh, I still root definitely against the Patriots just as an original going back to the day Jets fan, which has been an awful experience for my entire life, except for like the mid eighties and the late nineties when they were really good. Um, but yeah, like it is weird to be around here and have people being like, Whoa, the Patriots are losing. This is strange. Like, what do we even do? And, you know, even until the last couple of weeks when they really kind of fell off, they were like, it's okay. You know, Bill will pull it out. Yeah. Bill, Bill will figure it out. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, look at this team, man. It's not there. It's just not there. Um, they almost lost to the atrocious Jets on whatever that Thursday night game was, it maybe. Um, I don't remember which night it was. But, yes, and, like, this is good. This is a reckoning that, you know, probably shows a long time coming. Um, obviously, things have been a little too good in Boston for a long time. You know, as a sports fan of any sort, you know, you need the downs to appreciate the ups. And, you know, the idea that there are literally kids who have never experienced losing in Boston is ridiculous, who are, like, teenagers now. 
Yeah. You know, you only watch the teams win. So, like, you know, look, this is going to build some character around here. And I actually – I am definitely a Bruins fan. Um, I want to see the Bruins do well. I, this is the, probably the end of this particular window for them. This year is a, is a great shot for them. You know, they have – I think they this is their year um, to really go for it, obviously, in a lot of ways. You know, they, the divisional realignment that probably is going to be in place probably favors them in some ways. Um, so – I'm thinking this is this is a big year for the Bruins, um, but uh, and then the Celtics as well, and then the other teams like you know whatever we'll check in a few years. Yeah, uh, I mean, so so you'd be mad about the Celtics not making like what like I think a finals appearance and a loss to, would in the next three years I'd be like whatever you know because because <laughs> I I mean I don't really care about Boston sports, but I I've been since I was like ten. That's how young I am. I've been listening to Bill Simmons' podcasts and, oh, yeah. and reading his columns. So, like, I, I literally feel like you just have, like, this sideways affinity for Boston sports if you have listened to Simmons' stuff for a long time. I think that's and, like, fair. And, yeah, it was hard to – it was impossible to ignore Boston for the last 20 years. You know, you can't get away from the Patriots. You couldn't get away from the Red Sox, even the Celtics and Bruins. They're just there, you know. It's what New York was, for, like, a long time before that, and then Boston became it. And like, yeah, it, it was, it's been so dominant in the conversation for so long, but like, good, give some other people a chance, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah, I guess, you know, maybe I shouldn't be saying that because like I do, as you've noted, I am an editor of the athletic in Boston, but whatever, um, you know, it's, it's about the, the larger picture and, you know, look, the Boston, Boston still has two very good teams. Um, and, uh, Hey, look, even the revolution were good this year. They, they made, uh, the equivalent of the conference finals there. Um, so, you know, yeah, they're, they're good. They're, 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 they're a legit. fun team. So, you know, Bruce yeah. Arena's the man, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, look, it's, it's not as good around here. And I think that's not the end of the world. And look, these teams are structurally sound. They'll be back. Yeah. So is, uh, are people relishing when Brady struggles though? Like, is that, is that a big thing? Like when Brady no, just so. is throwing ducks out there or, no, or is I, it? I, I, yeah. I don't really, I don't really think so. I think for the most part, like, you know, there's a general appreciation around here with the, you know, with the exception of a small smeg segment, but of, you know, that that was a once in a lifetime type player to get. Uh, and you know, he brought so many people, so much happiness and all that stuff around here that I think there's generally a, a, a you know, People want to see him do well and all that. I don't think everyone loves him being in Tampa, but, you know, for the most part, everyone's pretty happy with, you know, rooting for him in general. I don't see any any real, you know, schadenfreude there. Yeah. Um, okay. The last thing I wanted to talk yeah. about was, have you got to spend any time with poker players from your time around, Jay? Because I've always, I from someone who is more journalistic and more analytical, I've always, I've always wondered, you know, if people see a big difference in, guys who were poker players and then became DFS players and guys who are just really into DFS. Cause there's so much <laughs> overlap between the two, you know, so yeah. many of the really good DFS players used to be poker players. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I'm just, I'm also super fascinated with poker. Uh, the episode of the show that's <laughs> going to come out that I recorded yesterday, that's going to come out a week ago when people were listening to this is uh, with, uh, yeah, I, I'm so bad with time. It's incredible. I even got that right. Was with the Tony Dunst, the host of the World Poker Tour, yeah, yeah, who sure. does all their other TV stuff. And so I just, people know I'm obsessed with poker players. So I'm wondering <laughs> if you had um, any experiences with professional poker players relative I mean, to DFS some, players. But not, not a lot, honestly. Not Professional poker players who were not DFS guys, I did not have much experience with. You know, a little bit, some. Um, like, Jay, Jay's buddy, Mike McDonald, Timex, um, you know, who's a big deal guy for a long time. Oh, yeah. Um, 
and a few other guys. Time, Timex, uh, Mike, if you're listening to this, I want you to come on the program. So if this, <laughs> if this, find, if this finds your way to you, Mike, I would love yeah, to have you on the show. He got involved in the, uh, in the next book as well. He, uh, he got a little involved in the treasure hunt in his own way. So um, interesting stuff there too, which I'll tell you another time. But uh, he, yeah, you know, him, some people, a few other guys, um, a couple, you know, Aaron Jones's friends who were not really DFS guys, dealt with some them a little bit. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I did not deal a lot with poker guys who were not related to DFS also. But at the same time, yes, I, I think there is a difference there. You know, I think that, you know, probably with the poker to DFS crew, you were seeing, you know, maybe in some ways more of the guys who, and I'm, I'm purely spitballing here, but who are a certain type who maybe in like the early to mid 2000s were the ones right, right before the poker boom were the same type who were on like the late 90s day trading, you know, that yeah. thing, like, and you're seeing people who go from edge situation to edge situation to edge situation as DFS absolutely was in its early days, you know, and as poker absolutely was in its early days before it got efficiented out. And as like, you know, things like, day trading with the you know, benefit of the internet was for a long time, you know, in the internet bubble boom in the late nineties and all that. So I think, you know, you are seeing some people who move from, and, and you know, the next thing that was crypto, by the way. So, you know, you're seeing people who seek out edge situations and boom situations. And I think that there's a consistent personality type in that. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of, you know, that's the, the crossover there. And then, you know, poker guys for poker guys, they love poker. Um, and they, yeah, what that definitely. Yeah. And that doesn't mean there's not, you know, math elements to both types of things. There's not to mean there's not high risk tolerance to both things. Doesn't mean there's not, you know, people who are seeking an edge in situations, but I think that there is definitely a different personality type between those who basically are looking for the next advantageous situation and those who have their game and they love it and they want to excel at it. Yeah. Okay. That's actually a good question again, because you just mentioned crypto. Uh, so I try and ask everyone who comes on the show what their experience has been like with crypto. Do you, does, do, do you own any Bitcoin or do you care? Or is it just, um, it doesn't I, even register I for don't you right now? I don't right now. I owned it. I sold it a profit. Um, I then watched it go down and felt very smart. I meant to go buy it again. I did not just basically because my mind was in other places. I watched it go back up again to a place where I didn't think it was a good time to buy. That was like 13. I feel stupid about that now because I missed that one. And yep. so now I sit on the, you know, the dumb person's place of, Oh, well, do I buy? Well, it's now real high blah, blah, blah. But no, I mean, generally speaking, yes, I'm a believer. Um, I am not as, uh, I'm not leveraging it as I should be, um, which is my own fault of just, you know, not really involving myself in that world as much as I should. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I, my, my opinion is there will be, there'll be an opportunity, right? Like the yeah. whole market, every, we have day, everything is up freaking Airbnb. Uh, their, their IPO <laughs> opens the other day at $145. Like they're this, this, the, the magic sprinkling of the federal reserve printing money over everything. Oh, like it, oh it can't, yeah. it can't, it can't and won't continue for the rest of time, right? There will yeah. be something that will cause all of these. It doesn't always go up, even when the economy is actually not doing that great, you know, right. there's a pandemic happening and many people are out of work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, yeah, the two things have been a little divorced from reality for a while and I think that's going to reconcile at some point. Yeah, at some point and it's going to suck for a lot of people. But yeah. my advice to you and to everyone listening to this is when that happens, 
just don't like write yourself a note, do what you ever have to do <laughs> to go buy yourself like $12,000 Bitcoin or $8,000 Bitcoin yes, or whatever. Win it, win it, win the event. I'm, I'm back in, you know, as soon as we're not on uh, on the level we're at right now. And I will remember to actually do it again this time versus uh, the previous time when I kind of blew it on that one. There we go. All right. Uh, Daniel, tell everyone where they can find your books. Where the, yeah. Where can people buy your books that you get the most amount of money from? It actually doesn't make any difference to me, honestly. Um, that is the real truth. Buy it anywhere, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, you know, any bookseller really. Um, right now you could buy it from the publisher's website. They probably like that better. I don't know. Uh, it's with Penguin Random House. Uh, but yeah, so Chasing the Thrill, um, Obsession, Death and Glory in America's Most Extraordinary Treasure Hunt drops uh, June of 2021, I believe June 8th. Uh, and, um, yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it. So it's, it is the crazy story of three plus years inside this treasure hunt and, uh, it's pretty nuts. So yeah, I, um, I'm really looking forward to it coming out and, um, I think it's really good. So buy the damn thing. Yeah, buy it. I'm super excited to read it. Uh, def like everything I read about the book was, I was just like, I'm in, I can't wait to read it. So <laughs> everyone, uh, I definitely pre-order it. Definitely make sure to read it. If you haven't, Read yeah, Dueling with Kings. Well. I will say, pre-orders are better than ordering it after it comes out. Those are those are big for us. So if you're okay. going to buy it anyway, buy it early and it'll show up, I promise. There we go. If you guys enjoyed the show, if you guys liked what Daniel had to say, definitely make sure to pre-order the book. And uh, we'll be back next week. Build digital-first customer relationships with Salesforce Digital 360. Connect every marketing, commerce, and digital experience on a single platform. Innovate fast with easy-to-launch sites, campaigns, and apps. That's more relationships, more revenue, more return, and more success. Salesforce Digital 360. Hear from our customers at sfdc.co slash digital 360.